Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. The area widely known as Louisiana's North Shore is located just across Lake Pontchartrain from New Orleans, a mere 40 minutes from the French Quarter. As close as the North Shore is geographically, in every other way, it's a world apart. Made up of multiple small towns, each with its own identity, Louisiana's North Shore is a wonder to wander, which is exactly what we're doing on this week's show. We begin in Slidell at Emma's Famous Pralines, where Emma Giron has devoted much of her life to Louisiana's most emblematic candy. Then we continue to satiate our sweet tooth with a visit to downtown Covington, where we get hoodooed by ice cream before sitting down with Chef Kim Kringley, whose restaurant, The Dakota, has been a North Shore institution for 30 years. We'll finish the fun with pizza at Dumont Artisan Kitchen, where North Shore newcomers, Osgore and Bulent Dumont, are realizing their American dream. We're taking a road trip to a favorite getaway on this week's Louisiana Eats. One of my favorite things about Louisiana is that no matter where you go, you meet amazing people with incredible stories. Recently, Louisiana Eats traveled to Slidell to meet a true treasure of the North Shore, Miss Emma Giron of Emma's Famous Pralines. Miss Emma is a food hero who has devoted much of her life to our state's most emblematic candy, the praline. Okay, well, my name is Emma Giron, and I am the owner of this praline company for the last 20 years that I've been right here in this little shop. Located in an unassuming strip mall on Old Spanish Trail, Emma's famous pralines is a compact but cozy space filled with the rich aroma of butter and sugar. Family photos and old newspaper clippings adorn the walls. And on the shelves there, you'll find individually wrapped pralines for sale, along with homemade goods both sweet and savory. I make pickles, okra, pies. What's this yummy thing here? That's a praline butter pound cake. I try to use pralines with everything that I do. Only thing I don't put pralines in is the pickles and the okra. <laughs> if you drop in on a typical weekday morning, you'll find Miss Emma in the kitchen cooking up batches of her signature confection in a variety of styles. I make the chocolate. Jamaican rum, no liquor because I don't have a liquor license. The traditional and coconut. Mm. And you'll recognize it as soon as you taste it. 
I like pre- I like making them, you know? On the morning we visited Miss Emma, she was working on a batch of Jamaican rum praline. Can we come in? Can we come in? When we asked her if we could join her in the kitchen, she said yes, but only on the condition that we didn't give away any of her secrets. Nobody, look, I have never had nobody come in here and look at me making them. As the sole operator of the company, Miss Emma is involved in every aspect of praline creation. After balancing a giant, heavy-bottomed pot on her stove, she switched on two burners and added her first set of ingredients, which began simmering. She pointed out that while some candy makers use industrial-grade equipment for heat conduction, her setup is less elaborate. I don't have no kettle like the big-time praline people. I got pots and I got two hands, y'all. While it may be a simpler process than the ones her competitors employ, it's by no means easier. Stirring that heated mixture by hand requires some vigilance at the stove. Miss Emma explained that sometimes all it takes is for one customer to come in and... It'll burn up. Oh, I done burned some up, y'all. People come in and, you know, I be trying to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to stay there and make sure that those people are satisfied. And then when I come back here, it be done. Burn. Yeah. Cause I ain't got nobody that I can say, well, go stir the pot, you know. It's just you. Yeah, but I'm all right, babe. As a one woman operation, Miss Emma makes up to 200 pralines a day for a devoted customer base that's grown exponentially over the past 20 years. Thanks mostly to word of mouth. It's very expensive to do advertising and I didn't have that money so I just made it and just every now and then somebody would stop in here say I didn't know you was here yes ma'am or yes sir and they'd buy the prelims and then they'd go tell other people and that would bring them here see that man uh huh oh it should be boiling now oh it's boiling oh, and yeah. it has changed color baby now I gotta get some little spices and stuff over here. Although Miss Emma has been making her pralines for 20 years, it's what you might consider a second career, and it almost didn't even happen. Long before she got into the candy-making business, Miss Emma lived and worked in St. Bernard Parish. There, she raised two sons with her late husband, Jose. His name was Jose Santos Hiron. He was from the Honduras and we married, was married 32 years. And my husband and I, you know, we got together a little house in Violet. For decades, Miss Emma worked just down the road in Araby at a nursing home. As its activities director, she organized events for residents like crafts, bingo, and sing-alongs. I worked at the Maison Orleans, and my job there was to make them not want to die. Oh, baby, it worked. I had so many volunteers because people, moms and dads passed away, you know, in the course of my being there, and they couldn't leave. The the daughters and the sons, they all just kept coming, and they all turned into volunteers. Meanwhile, her husband made his living as a seaman working offshore, a job that took him far away from home. He was a captain 
on those supply boats for the oil rigs. And he said to me one day, you know, maybe you need to do something else. He said, because I don't feel very good. And I said, oh, you're going to be fine. But as time passed, Jose only became more adamant about it. He said, you got to do something because I really don't feel good. So um, I had the opportunity, you know, I could have sang or done something else. After 32 years working at the nursing home, Miss Emma considered her options. One path forward involved embracing her innate talent as a singer. She loved singing for the residents of Maison Orleans and at her church, and she'd even recorded a CD that showcased her voice. My mouth is filled with praise, praise, and a song for you. I went to several places, you know, with the singing, the Roosevelt Hotel and uh, at the Lakefront Arena, the Civic Auditorium of St. Bernard Parish. I went to several places. She also sang at a venue most singers can only dream about, Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. Miss Emma had a brush with fame when she performed for a crowd of several thousand there in 1999. The story begins at Avondale Shipyard, located about 20 miles upriver from New Orleans. Miss Emma was asked to sing there as part of a convention for the Sheet Metal Workers Association. And they needed somebody to sing Amazing Grace. I said, no, I'm not going, you know. So my sister said, come and we'll go with you. So I said, okay. Ooh, y'all, it was a big outside thing, you know. And they had a stage. Well, oh, Lord, they put me up on this stage. I said, oh, my word. The only place, you know, I had ever gone and was really comfortable was at church. Uh-huh. So I just went and sang Amazing Grace for them. The General Secretary Treasurer of the Sheet Metal Workers National Association was in the audience that day. He was so moved by the purity and strength of Miss Emma's voice that he booked her as featured performer for the association's international convention in Sin City. They rented the second floor of the Caesars Palace. I had to sing before about six or 7,000 people. I was so scared, I didn't know what to do. But we made it through the whole thing, and everybody treated me so nice. Gave me direction and taught me how to pray. He's the bread of life. I'm in love with him today. They were wonderful to me, but who knows where I was going to go after, you know? And if the experience was going to be as pleasing as it was in Nevada. So when her husband asked her what she wanted to do next for a living, Miss Emma made the decision to focus her energy on pralines, something she and her sister-in-law had just started to experiment with. My sister-in-law and I played with them about, say, I've been here 20 years. So we started making them about five years prior Mm -hmm. to that, and uh, we'd sell them $3 a batch to the nursing home people. And, oh, my God, they loved it. When y'all going to make So after he started talking about me doing the singing or this, I chose this, and then I just got it to perfection. Now, this is Jamaican rum, and it's the best seller. 
How do you know when they're done? You just know. Giving the pot a final stir, Miss Emma began the process of dropping spoonfuls of pralines onto two baking sheets. The past 20 years weren't always easy for Miss Emma. Shortly after opening the praline shop, her husband Jose passed away from a stroke at the age of 62. There were setbacks, hurricanes, and even a broken hip. I done been in some stuff, but I'm still here. While a strip mall in Slidell is not the Las Vegas strip, it's all the glamour that Miss Emma has needed. As she marks two decades of making pralines on Old Spanish Trail, she's embraced her reputation as a local favorite and community treasure. And y'all, I've been, people have been coming from all over the world here. And I said, how'd you know I was here? They said, we Googled it, and you were the only one that showed up on a Google. And, Poppy, I don't know how to do, I'm 71 years old. I don't know how to do uh, the Googling and all that kind of stuff. So they say, and you came up with five stars. Well, thank God for Google, Whatever huh? Whatever that is, I said to myself, now, Lord, how am I going to see the five stars? But anyway, y'all, I've been making these prillions, and I love this job. I wouldn't give it up. You say, well, when are you going to retire? I said, when death comes. That's when I'm, I have no, no thoughts of retiring. For what? You know? I give you my all. I give you everything. That was Miss Emma Geron of Emma's Famous Pralines. You can find her at her shop at 705 Spanish Trail in Slidell. Coming up next, our trip to the North Shore continues as we make our way to Hoodoo Ice Cream in Covington's historic St. John District. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce. How New Orleans does flavor. On North Columbia Street in Covington's historic St. John District, Hoodoo Ice Cream has been offering a variety of locally sourced homemade flavors since 2018. When Louisiana Eats visited Hoodoo Ice Cream on a weekday afternoon, owners Billy Susky and George Shank offered us samples of their creations. That's really yummy. 
That's really yummy. Everything from vanilla and chocolate to almond pistachio, blueberry buttermilk, and bananas foster. We have about 14 flavors. We have about 10 flavors that are always on the menu, and we have four to six flavors that we rotate. If you're not sure where to begin, don't worry. They offer flights of different flavors, just like the flights you might purchase at a brewery. So you get four two-ounce servings, which is the equivalent of a double scoop of ice cream. Each flavor of ice cream is made from grass-fed Jersey cow's milk from Mote Progress Milk Barn in Mississippi, the same makers of Creole cream cheese. In fact, one of the flavors you can try at Hoodoo is their delicious Creole cream cheese ice cream. That was the Creole cream cheese that you actually just tasted. I knew that was Creole cream cheese, and it is perfect because it's complex. It's got that tartness. It's wonderful. After savoring those samples, we sat down with Billy and George to learn how these two friends became the unlikely owners of an ice cream shop. My name's Billy Susky. I'm a co-owner of Hoodoo Ice Cream. I'm a George Schenk, and I'm a co-owner of Hoodoo Ice Cream. I had a carpentry business, and um, ice cream was just a hobby. This is just kind of a hobby that got out of control. Put down the hammer and uh, picked up the scoop. And um, George was uh, a chef here in the community. I was um, executive chef at a private country club in Abita Springs. <laughs> and so... Uh, how did the two of you all come together over an ice cream cone? Well, my daughter is nine years old right now, so I guess when she was around five or six years old, we were just uh, making ice cream at the house for fun, learning the science behind the whole aging process and doing it all on pen and pad and uh, just to balance those butter fats, to have that high butter fat and get the right amount of sugar in the ice cream to actually make an ice cream that's scoopable when you freeze it the next day and not turn into some icy mess that um, some people experience. We did ice cream at the house for a while and then a, um, this ice cream cart popped up for sale and um, you ask a six-year-old girl, do you want to make ice cream and sell it at the farmer's market? They're of course going to say yes. So that ice cream cart was the catalyst to it all at the farmer's market. After a couple of years at the farmer's market, that's when um, just took a big plunge and decided to um, call George and I said, George, why don't you uh, quit your job and take a plunge in some ice cream and see if we float. I knew Billy's work ethic, and he was a, a grinder and, and wants to get after it. And, and after just one conversation on what we envisioned, uh, I knew that we could just push each other to go as far as we were uh, wanting to go. And it just made enough sense, and it caused enough people, once I told them about the idea that they thought we were absolutely crazy, that I knew it was going to be the right thing. We got together and kind of did some research and realized that um, there wasn't too much farm-to-table ice cream happening in the South, and we booked a trip out west to do some exploration and came back to Covington and put it all together and on paper. So tell me about what sets your ice cream apart from everyone else's. It's farm-to-table, is it? Yes. From what I've learned along the way, most people make their ice cream with either a liquid mix or a powdered mix, and um, we're actually using the raw ingredients and putting it together from scratch, creating um, a product that I think separates ours from uh, most people out there. So we use um, local blueberries, we use uh, punch tool strawberries, 
try to source as many of these local ingredients as we can. I'm very curious about your actual manufacturing processes, if there's any of those things you could tell us about. I think it would probably be labeled as Philadelphia style, which uh, doesn't have any eggs or any um, added emulsifiers. And the Motes cows, the Jersey cows, produce enough butter fat to substitute for the eggs per se and uh, allows for emulsification. But uh, we do allow all of the bases to age a minimum of 12 hours, and that kind of helps um, all the sugar to dissolve and lower the s melting point of the ice cream. It is um, a little different than the other ice creams, per se, because it is technically alive. George, you're the chef in the pair, so you must be the mad science flavorist. Tell me how you develop the flavors of your ice cream, and are there some of them that are sort of um, wild, harebrained schemes? Well, we collaborate on all the flavors and um, bounce ideas off of each other, and some of them stick, and some of them shouldn't stick, but still make a, uh, an appearance. We did a cardamom and pickled okra ice cream uh, last, last fall. <laughs> we had some pregnant um, customers that really enjoyed it, but um, it was frequently sampled out, but it wasn't purchased too much. Um, but it was still fun to play around with. And sometimes you're playing with pepper, so you're playing with fire and ice, huh? Yeah, that's correct. We, um, we try to utilize some locally made products as well, and uh, one of them happens to be a, a pepper jelly. And so we'll pair the seasonal fruit with that same fruited pepper jelly to have a little spicy interaction. That sounds delicious. Now, do you all actually make the cones to order? Um, well, it's based off a French tool recipe, and... Um, we started off with a commercial mix right when we first opened as we were uh, gathering our marbles and getting into the groove of things, and we quickly knew that uh, we had to make a scratch cone. We just kept playing around with ratios of flour and sugar and eggs, and we came up with something that is uh, light and airy and crispy and has enough structural support to hold a couple scoops of ice cream. Now, tell me about your customers, because... You know, an ice cream shop in old downtown Covington, it's so charming. You must have a lot of devoted fans. Yeah, we definitely um, have some, some regulars that come through. And uh, one of the cool things about being in ice cream is that sweets cross all generations and all, all people from all walks of life. So we have a very diverse group of uh, customers that come through and old and young unite here and it's really nice to uh, to be a part of that well it's fun that a lot of these kids they're going to experience this ice cream shop at such a young age and then um, as they grow this is going to be one of these memories that they have later in life they're going to remember going to that ice cream shop and getting those warm cones and um, having this really good experience That was Billy Susky and George Shank, owners of Hoodoo Ice Cream in historic downtown Covington. I'm Kim Kringley, chef and co-owner of the Dakota Restaurant in Covington. 
Over the past 30 years, Chef Kim Kringley's restaurant, The Dakota, has become a mainstay of North Shore fine dining. Along the way, he's been recognized as Culinary Artist of the Year by the St. Tammany Arts Commission and named one of New Orleans' top 25 chefs by the American Culinary Federation. You may be surprised to learn that Chef Kim hails from Grand Forks, North Dakota, where at the age of 15, he discovered his love for the restaurant business with his first job at a steakhouse called the Bronze Boot. But in Louisiana, the self-described mashed potatoes and gravy flatlander works magic with our bountiful local seafood. If you have any doubts, you've never tasted his sublime crab meat and brie soup. Louisiana Eats sat down with Chef Kim to hear the story of his amazing life's journey. Well, actually, my three older brothers were chefs. Uh, A good friend of the family had a series of restaurants in our area, and we all started working for him in high school and then moved on and became chefs through different parts of the country. And I just followed my brother's footsteps. I was actually going to be an airline pilot, uh, but I got distracted into the cooking field. And I actually went and uh, after high school, I moved out uh, to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I worked for my brother out there. He kind of lured me out in the mountains and kind of got really introduced into different foods and dove right in. So you eventually end up in Louisiana, and uh, your your first spot where you landed right. was at Jubin's in Baton Rouge, a very famous Baton Rouge restaurant. It had just opened. I was one of the. I wasn't the uh, the executive chef when I was hired on, but two months later, they're like, "Yeah, you're you're the man." So they kind of appointed the position to me because I wasn't well known in the area. How did you figure the Louisiana food out? I just did a lot of reading. You know, Paul Perdone had come out with his first cookbook maybe a year or so before that. And, you know, just kind of really got into the Louisiana food and just thought to myself, you know, there's no other place to be a better place to be a chef with all the ingredients that are here in Louisiana and the foods that people enjoy eating. You know, I had a lot of European influence uh, with me living in Jackson Hole. I worked for an Austrian chef for about three and a half years out there. So I had a lot of that French influence, the German influence and, you know, the the international side. And he kind of took me aside and uh, taught me a lot of the European style. So I had a good foundation for it. And then it was basically surrounding myself with good people to help me achieve what I wanted to achieve and kind of learning as I went along. And then a little bit after that, you know, of course, I worked for John Foles at Lafitte's Landing became his corporate executive chef after time, uh, about a year or so with him. I got more introduction into the roots of Louisiana food, you know, which I just find it fascinating in itself, all the different influences and how it just all comes together. So, Chris, tell me how you came to have your own restaurant after leaving Um, John Foles. Well, we, uh, I was back at, I went back to Jubin's and I was there for a couple of years. And then uh, Kenny, my business partner, who's from Covington, a friend of his uh, family members, the, the location of the Dakota became available. And he kept, you know, he used to eat at Jubin's all the time. He's like, I love the food. I love the service. 
And that's when Kenny and I kind of looked at the property and decided to make a move within a matter of two weeks with, you know, no business plan, no capital, just pure ambition, you know, and it's like, yeah, we can do this. You know, I wouldn't recommend it today, but uh, we just kind of made a decision, had a, borrowed some money from a couple of friends and a couple of family members and just push forward with, uh, you know, our goal to be a great restaurant. Kim, there is no denying that 30 years ago, the North Shore was an entirely different place than it is today. What was it like there 30 well, years ago? It, it, well, it, it, just like it is today, it's still kind of a bedroom community, not as much as it was 30 years ago. Um, 30 years ago, there was a golf course across the street from the Dakota. You know, it's kind of like almost remote uh, in the middle of nowhere. And uh, sometimes we would, the staff, the waiters and kitchen crew, between lunch and dinner, we would drag our clubs and everything across the street, go play eight holes of golf, and then go back for the dinner chip. That's youth but, for uh, you, huh? Yeah. Now, <laughs> now I come home and take a nap. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's always been a little bit of a foodie community to some degree. And then especially once the food network kind of came about and people started watching, you know, and I'll take a good example is, you know, we introduced Fogua early on, maybe in, you know, 1992 or something like that. And people really didn't know what it was. And then they started seeing it on the food network. And it's like, oh, we want that now, you know, because we had a hard time selling it. So we just like, okay, we give up. You know, we'll give them what they want. And it's still kind of that way, you know, and then we reintroduced Fogua, you know, a couple of years down the road after people were exposed to it. And then there was a, a, a desire to try and eat it and enjoy it, obviously. And, you know, we were one of the very few restaurants that uh, offered something like that. So we've always been kind of a trendsetter to some degree. You know, I always look at it as the Dakotas. There's two parts. One is this is who we want to be. And then the other side of the menu is this is who we have to be. Maybe the average public that, you know, wants something, but, you know, a little bit a comfort zone for them, but then stepped up a little bit to say, hey, you know, it's this, but it's something extra. Maybe I'm crazy, but it seems to me the phenomena of crab meat and brie soup somehow got its start in a pot at the Dakota. Tell me how that well, be became such a signature it, dish. It, it started before that. Uh, actually, my brother's the one who created it. He and I worked together at Jubin's in Baton Rouge. And he, you know, I know Paul Perdome, he had done a oyster and brie soup in his cookbook. So my brother's like, well, I like crab meat. I'm going to do a crab meat and brie soup. And he's kind of created it. Then I, I always call it, he created it and I perfected it. And here we are today. How has the restaurant changed over the 30 years? Well, it's changed a little bit. To some degree, you know, I think during the the so-called recession, like 2009 and 10, we tried to casualize our menu a little bit, our style a little bit, you know, because the whole mindset was changing. You know, the pricing factor, you know, the wines that people were purchasing, they weren't purchasing the, the high-end dollar wines anymore. They were coming in looking for a $30, $40 bottle. So it's, you know, and it's always evolving. It's And it's the same thing right now with, you know, the pandemic of, you know, what are people looking for? It's almost like post Katrina where they're looking for a getaway of let me just get into an environment, take my 
mind away from, you know, whatever's going on in the out, outside world and let me truly enjoy myself. You know, so we've done a, you know, really try to go above and beyond, you know, to try to make ourselves feel comfortable too is, you know, owners, employees, and the guests to make sure everybody's safe uh, within the pandemic. And who knows what's in the future, you know, what's the next craziness going on in the world. For the most part, you know, we try to always be who we want to be. We want to be a place where, you know, like I say, it's just not dinner, it's dining. It's an experience. It's removing yourself from your daily problems or politics or whatever it might be in the outside world and kind of, you know, it's kind of like watching a good movie. Just take your brain off of everything for a while and, and pamper the customer. Make them, make them feel important. Make them feel good. Make them feel wanted, you know, which is so important. Kim, what do you want to be remembered for on the North Shore? What, what do you want to be the legacy that, that you leave behind after a lifetime well, there? Well, I think the, you know, the thing is that you know, we always push ourselves. We always try to overcome any obstacles. Um, and, you know, and a lot of people will say, you know, I've eaten here over the years, and it's just so consistent, the service, the food quality. And it, you know, and it doesn't come easy. It comes just by constant attention. And are we perfect? No. You know, do some things slip through the cracks? Absolutely. Just like any other business. But we are always trying to pursue excellence, you know. And, and sometimes you get distracted of that. Maybe it's the surroundings. Maybe it's the environment. Like right now, I feel as though my menu is a little bit simple, but it has to be that way because of the staffing and because the attention that, that you can put towards it. And then, uh, you know, once we're ready to open the gates up a little more, we will grow and uh, get a little bit more uh, creative and involved in the food. But people are loving what they're enjoying right now, too. So we're right now we're who they want us to be more than who we want to be. <laughs> but you'll have a chance to stretch those wings again. Absolutely. Kim, I'm so glad we had this opportunity to talk and to maybe introduce some people who don't go to the North Shore much or are entertaining the idea of a vacation there. I hope they'll put the Dakota on their list of must-do, must-eat places to stop. Well, thank you, Poppy. Me too. That'd be perfect. That was Kim Kringley, executive chef and co-owner of the Dakota on Highway 190 in Covington. the North Shore become an agricultural hub? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, 
new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, just 40 minutes from New Orleans, Louisiana North Shore's Tammany Taste features the bounty of the bayou and rich culinary culture from award-winning chefs, mom-and-pop restaurants, specialty bakers, and creative mixologists. To discover more, request the Explore the North Shore Inspiration Guide for local stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. How and when did the Louisiana North Shore become an agricultural hub? Farmers have found fertile ground on the North Shore since the 1800s, but the completion of the Causeway Bridge in 1956, followed by the I-10 twin span in 1965, made the round trip to New Orleans so easy that many dairy and farming families pulled up roots in the city and moved across the lake. Through the late 60s and early 70s, the North Shore became New Orleans' favorite bedroom community, but a healthy farming tradition continues there as evidenced at the weekly farmers' markets. There are six weekly farmers' markets on the North Shore, providing fresh produce and lots more in Covington, Mandeville, Madisonville, Abita Springs, Folsom, and Slidell. So head to the North Shore soon to meet the farmers and pass a very good time. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Just south of Highway 190 in Mandeville, only about 45 minutes from downtown New Orleans, you'll come across Dumont Artisan Kitchen, a husband and wife collaboration producing some extraordinary fare in a beautiful setting. Influenced by Turkish, Italian, Israeli, and American cooking, Azgur and Boulant Duman offer an eclectic menu unusual for the North Shore. Recently, Louisiana Eats had the opportunity to sit down with Osgur and reflect on how the Turkish immigrants came to open Duman's Artisan Kitchen. My name is Özgür Duman. I am the co-owner and co-chef at Duman's Artisan Kitchen, together with my husband, Bülent Duman. We are from Istanbul, which is a, a huge melting pot of different cultures, different uh, religions and backgrounds of people. They are all there. And we have a enormous uh, cuisine in Turkey, specifically in Istanbul, because all the East and West come together in a place like Istanbul. And even though 
we both are Turkish. My mom was married to an Israeli man, and we have been together uh, with some uh, Jewish communities all throughout my life. And I was born in Germany. My mom's side comes from Greece, partially Greece, partially from Bulgaria. So uh, we have a lot going on as far as cultures and cuisine, and I am very happy of it. We are very blessed, honestly. Now, of all of the places in the United States where you could choose to live, how did you all end up settling here? It was a series of misfortunate events and coincidences. It is a like really, really long story, but I am not going to lie. When I first ended up in Louisiana, I did not like it one bit. It was the middle of the summer. It was so hot and all the bugs and everything. But after a while, it grows on you and we fell in love and we didn't even think of moving anywhere else after that. This, what we have here, was the dream all along. So when we found this building here, we actually discovered Mendeville and we fell in love with Mendeville as well. The people are amazing here. They are very kind and friendly and accepting and it was probably the best decision of our lives to come to Mendeville with this business. And how long ago was it that you came to the United States? So how long and how long have you been at this restaurant game? Well, uh, we have been in the States for uh, a little over 10 years. And ever since then, we have been in pizza business one way or another. So. All this is a accumulation of all the experience of doing pizza for 10 years. Pizza is a large part of your business, but there's so much more because I read your menu and there's all sorts of delicious things. Everything from Italian classics to gyros and hummus. Yes, well, our background is Turkish, so we are trying to incorporate some of our cultural food in what we are doing. Also with the Italian classics like the lasagna. It is a class Italian classic, but the lasagna that we're making here is actually my mom's recipe, who is Turkish. So our meatballs, uh, that's why we have the arugulas and the hummus. The hummus is also my... Uh, mom's ex-husband's recipe. It's a family recipe from Israel. So it is Italian and pizza, but we try to put a little bit of a spin to it, incorporating our heritage as well. Well, there's a lot of very delicious things on your menu. Thank you. W would you talk to me about some of the things that you think are special and distinctive that you all offer here at Duman Artisan Kitchen? The product that we are most proud of is our pizza. And for many people, pizza is just bread and cheese and sauce and you can't go wrong with it, which I completely do not agree. Pizza, especially dough, is a living thing. It is a science as much as it is 
cooking. So um, we prepare our dough, uh, whatever pizza we're gonna sell, three days ahead of time. It comes to a perfect light rise where you have the crispy, crunchy crust, but it's still very airy and doughy in the inside. And that took a lot of trials and adjustments and betterments with the temperature and the yeast amount and all the formula. Honestly, when we first opened this place uh, with our new oven, we had to adjust our recipe. And when we hit this recipe that we have right now, I cried. When we made our first pizza, I was like, yes, this is what I have been dreaming for. This is what we were trying to do. Tell me about what you all do to achieve your own distinctive red gravy here. We get that question a lot. And we have a lot of people who just buy the uh, pizza sauce, the red sauce we make here. They bring their own jar and we sell it. Same with our Caesar dressing. Those two things are very uh, popular and people want to take it home and uh, cook with it, experiment with it. And that's a great thing. I'm going to give you a secret. The secret is there is no secret. The secret is that it is just as plain, as simple, as fresh as it can be. There is uh, no preservatives, no chemicals, no uh, special techniques. It's just plum tomatoes, fresh garlic, not powdered garlic, fresh basil, not dried basil and herbs and spices and there is no sugar in our sauce that's that's the whole secret you can make it at home that's what makes it so beautiful you know anybody would say oh the life of a small restaurant owner oh don't get me started (laughs) i'd like to know what what's life like for you and your husband Well, I tell this to everybody who would listen, friends and uh, everybody who is jealous of uh, the thing that we have here. What I tell them is if you are not absolutely in love and passionate about what you are doing, then don't. Because this is not a sane person thing to do. I'm not kidding. It is long hours, hard work, like physical labor. You have a very rough social life, but we love what we're doing. So it is worth every second of it, every tear, sweat, and blood (laughs) that goes into it. That was Osgur Duman, co-owner and co-chef of Duman Artisan Kitchen. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Explore the taste of flavor 
are a new series of cooking classes we're producing with Louisiana Fish Fry. In each class, you'll get to cook along with me as you master a classic Louisiana dish. Our first class takes place on Friday, March 26th, featuring catfish pecan meniere and Louisiana Fish Fry's etouffee. The class is free, but we're accepting donations to support the Louisiana Hospitality Foundation. To learn more and sign up, head to louisianafishfry.com. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and videos, too. And if you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods and wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.